Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we're going to discuss an essential text from the middle of the 19th century, the transcript of a speech delivered at the Women's Rights Convention in Akron, Ohio in 1851. The speech is entitled, Ain't I a Woman? And it was delivered by the great abolitionist and women's rights activist, Sojourner Truth. But before we dive into the speech, I'd like to introduce my reading partner for this episode, Raina Clay McKay. Hi, Raina. Hi, Amy. It's so great to have you with us today. I'm so excited. Raina and I lived across the hall from each other our freshman year of college, and it has been so fun to reconnect. I was actually, I think the last time we saw each other was at your wedding reception, right, Raina? It was. And so that was almost 10 years ago. I can't believe it. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, this has been so fun. We've been chatting on FaceTime for a long time today. An hour. (laughs) (laughs) It's been so fun to catch up. Um, And I'm just so thrilled that you're here and that you're, um, going to be able to discuss this text with me today. Thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited. So um, a little bit about Raina. Raina is a wife, mom, and obstetric anesthesiologist. She married a dreamy Scotsman for for much more than his accent (laughs) and gained two fantastic bonus kids as a result. They added three more kiddos to the mix, including identical twin boys and a daughter. They also have the best cavoodle in the world named Hamish. I love that. I love the name. Um, Good Scottish she, name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, so Raina is a traveler by nature, and she says they've lived in over a dozen cities thanks to medical training across the United States. She moved from Massachusetts to Tampa Bay almost three years ago and loves the indoor-outdoor lifestyle of Florida. It's also the midway point between the, the California family and her husband's family in the UK. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That's a yeah. lot of airplane yeah. miles. We do <laughs> have a lot of airplane miles, but it's oh, almost yeah. exactly like five and a half, six hours both ways. So oh, okay. it works, Actually, it works yeah. really well. You're right yeah. in the middle. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love it. We That's are. Great. Um, so she grew up in California and Utah, which shaped her outlook on life in general. As the daughter of a single African-American mother in Utah, she constantly felt a sense of being other. This permeated her high school, college, and medical school experience, and she was at uh, the University of Utah for medical school. While she cherishes the relationships she developed in Utah, one of them being me, right, Raina? Because we met in <laughs> my favorite cheerleader. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we, we met in Utah. We did. We did. You were my key to being cool. Oh, I was not. Yes, oh, stop you it. No, no, you were mine. You no, were mine. Seriously, you guys had the best like contacts. I felt like I was the nerdy kid on the floor. And so then I had these beautiful, gorgeous, like friends who I could be cool with. So it That's- was I felt the exact same way about you. I felt uh-huh. I was the nerdy kid on the floor. That and we so funny. We all partied in the hall together. We did. Oh, that was so fun. That's hilarious. Okay, we need to circle back and talk more Sorry about, about that. that. Yeah, we need to go back to that. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Anyway, well, yes, back to Utah. Um, mm-hmm. The Utah years, Raina says that the cultures didn't mesh super well and she finds that the she found that the california culture of acceptance of all genders religions people sexualities was more aligned with her values and i can certainly echo that in my own experience as well 
Okay, so speaking of values, uh, Reina values her family above all, but also loves pretty things. That <laughs> includes her obsession with home renovation and decor, kids' birthday parties, and cooking beautiful, delicious food. They try to indulge their love of travel to pretty places as often as possible. I love it. Yeah. She thinks this hails back to her taking a certain scripture to heart as a kiddo. And the scripture quote is, if there is anything lovely, a good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. I love it. Uh, her other core value is justice and equality. She is a firm believer that differences are what make us great and they should be applauded and supported. As she's gotten older and wiser, she's found her voice becoming louder, champion, championing for the injustices in the medical system and society as a whole. Her hope is that the future is more glorious with a rainbow of differing opinions and people that are equally acknowledged. Oh, that is my hope as well, Raina. Yeah, I hope so. So on any given day outside of the hospital, you will find Raina hanging with the family, playing the New York Times crossword, or flipping through HGTV magazine while watching a British crime drama, or The Crown. I love it. We have so much in common. Yeah, I got to multitask. I can't yeah, do one course. thing at the same time. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. And Raina says she's happiest with her core people and is delighted to get thrown back to freshman year with me. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Such a delight. <laughs> well, so I also, I like to ask each guest on the podcast what attracted them to the Breaking Down Patriarchy Project. Can you just say a little bit about that? Well, I think first and foremost was that you were doing it. Um, <laughs> really, honestly, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And so any chance to support women women supporting mm -hmm. women, but then also a woman who is a friend uh, yeah. was um, really, really important for me to do. I think we uh, don't, we've had this discussion, you know, in our hour that we were talking before, mm -hmm. but about how women can be the, each other's worst critics. So yeah. I feel like let's flip the, um, flip the playbook in a way mm -hmm. and become each other's best supports, you know, yeah, who it. better than that to do that. And yeah. then also it's just a fascinating um, topic for me, especially in my field in medicine mm -hmm. that um, the patriarchy is alive and well, and mm -hmm. I have had to find ways to break it down, but also to um, not break it down gently, but mm -hmm. break it down methodically and mm -hmm. professionally because um, it is very easy to become outcast very quickly if you bring up things that are uncomfortable for the patriarchy, um, especially in medicine. And so I've had to find ways to navigate that um, while still trying to systematically, in my small scope that I do have, break mm -hmm. it down the patriarchy. So yeah. it just, um, it was just a really kind of no brainer in that I was like, oh, I've got to participate in this. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's kind of, that's how we, that's how we reconnected really is because mm -hmm. I'm very rarely on Facebook, yeah. but for some reason I was looking at trying to find some, I don't remember what the reason was, but I looked on Facebook and I saw your post and then yeah clicked on and saw all of these posts, yeah. social justice in terms of racism and sexism. And I thought, I've got to reconnect. We'll, we should have reconnected anyway. Yeah. But I just thought we ended up being 
so, so aligned, so yep. familiar, so aligned in our values. Yes, and so it was so fun to ping you and discover. Isn't that crazy? I wish yeah. we lived near each other all these years. I know. I know. And now we're like on opposite sides of the country. Yeah. That's not I fair. Know. We will no. We will figure out a way. We're going to have to like find a way to do like a biannual reunion or something yes, like that. Yes, we should. Let's do it. We should. Yep. Love it. <laughs> well, for today, while we're here together, yes. we have this... Uh, magnificent text to talk about. And I'm wondering, Raina, would you, we have quite, I want to talk about Sojourner Truth herself Uh um, quite a bit and kind of to give some context about who she was, where she lived, what her life circumstances were so that when we listen to the speech, we can kind of know who she was. So I'm wondering, will you take the first half and then I'll take the second half? Sure. So Sojourner Truth was born as Isabella Bomfrey, and she was known as Belle. She was one of either 10 or 12 children born to James and Elizabeth Bomfrey. A man named Charles Hardenberg bought James and Elizabeth from slave traders and then kept their family at his estate in a beautiful big hilly area called the Dutch name Swartekill. And I may pronounce that wrong. I'm so sorry. In the town of Esopus, New York, 95 miles north of New York City. Um, Mr. Hardenberg inherited his father's estate and continued to enslave people as part of that estate's property. Um, when he died in 1806, nine-year-old Bell was sold at an auction with a flock of sheep for $100 to John Neely. Until that time, she spoke only Dutch. Uh, she later described Neely as cruel and harsh, relating to how he beat her daily, often because she did not understand English. Um, in 1808, Neely sold her for $105 to a tavern keeper named Martimus uh, Shriver of Port Ewan, New York, who owned her for another year and a half. Uh, Shriver then sold her in 1810 to John Dumont of West Park, New York. Um, interestingly enough, I've lost track of how many times she was sold. Yeah, me too. Yeah. John Dumont frequently uh, raped his enslaved women. And for that reason, there was considerable tension between Isabella and Dumont's wife, Elizabeth Waring Dumont, who harassed her and made her life um, much more difficult. Around 1815, um, Belle met and fell in love with an enslaved man named Robert from a neighboring farm. Robert's owner was Charles Catton, and he forbade their relationship. He did not want the people he enslaved to have children with people he was not enslaving because back then um, it was a law that he would not own the children. Um, They belonged to the uh, slave owner of the mother. So one day Robert sneaked over to see her. When Catton and his son found him, they savagely beat him until Dumont finally intervened. Isabella never saw Robert again after that day, and he died a few years later. The experience haunted her throughout her life. Uh, she eventually married an older enslaved man named Thomas, um, after which she bore five children. James, who died in childhood. Diana, who was the result of a rape by her slave master. And then Peter, Elizabeth, and Sophia. Um, in 1799, the state of New York began to legislate uh, the abol- abolition of slavery, although the process of emancipating those people enslaved in New York was not complete until July 4th, interesting, <laughs> of mm-hmm. 1827. Wow. Uh-huh. Dumont had promised to grant Bell her freedom a year before the state emancipation, quote, if she would do well and be faithful, unquote. However, as usual, he changed his mind, claiming a hand injury had made her less productive. She was infuriated, but continued working. Um, she could spin up to 100 pounds of wool uh, to satisfy her sense of obligation to him. 
Late in 1826, she escaped to freedom with her infant daughter, Sophia. She had to leave her other children behind because they were not legally freed in the Emancipation Order until they had served as bound servants into their 20s. Hmm. <sighs> Anyhow, she later said, quote, I did not run off for I thought that wicked, but I walked off believing that to be all right, unquote. I think one, it's so awful. It's awful. One thing that I noticed as you were reading is just how it might surprise some people. And I remember uh, learning about this pretty recently that we think of the practice of enslavement only being a Southern problem. And you don't think of New York as being a place where people had slaves or even up in Boston. Boston. Until, until like, really late in the process much yep. later than i knew until yep. i started reading about this well so i the- think it's the it's the and i i hate using this term but it's i think it's very relevant it's the whitewashing of history right yeah. and i mean no, it in right. terms of the caucasian washing of history absolutely you know um the north wanted to be seen especially the northeast as progressive mm-hmm. as right. evolutionary as mm-hmm. open and mm-hmm. so therefore it has done a really good job in our history text of sounding like they were the proponents of freedom from the 1700s on right they (laughs) were the good guys they're the the good guys and the south were the bad guys and you know it's very interesting yeah it is yeah yes exactly okay so i'll pick up Mm -hmm. the story where she so so she walks away yep from that situation with her baby daughter leaving her other children, um, she found her way to the home of Isaac and Maria Van Wagenen, who took her and her baby in. Isaac contacted Dumont, the man who had formerly owned her and offered to buy her services for the remainder of the year. And Dumont accepted that offer for $20. So she was essentially purchased out of enslavement. Mm-hmm. And then she lived with the Van Wagenens until the New, the New York State Emancipation Act was approved a year later. And then she was officially free. So um, at that point, Isabella learned that her son, Peter, then five years old, had been sold illegally by Dumont to an owner in Alabama. Um, With the help of the Van Wagenens, she took the issue to court. And in 1828, after months of legal proceedings, she got back her son. And she learned that he had been abused by those who were enslaving him. It's so I just can't even process what that must have felt like for her. But I I can't imagine my boys just turned six. So I just had until a week ago, five year old boys. And just to think of them being abused and sold is just I can't understand that as a mother like that. Anyway, that goes to the deep, dark recesses of my soul that I don't even want to touch, you know? Yeah, I can't even imagine right now. Yeah. Um, what a majestic woman, though, that she... Oh, my gosh. That she... I mean, all of us would have... You would just suffer in unspeakable ways knowing that. But the fact that she was able to take that man to court... And, Isn't that amazing? Get, right? Yeah, yeah. That she was empowered enough to say, this is not right, and I'm going to fight this. Yeah. And she she became one of the first Black women to go to court against a white man and win the case. I know. So I wish we knew more about that, actually. And who and the Van Wagenens must have been just wonderful people, too. They had to, to have been, especially to during that time of period, you know, that period of time that right. this probably was not popular. Does that make yeah. sense at all yeah, you're right. to support your your black slave um, mm-hmm. taking a white man to court? I mean, think about yeah. that. They must have had some you want to talk about, you know, uh, neighborhood 
dynamics. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. There must not have been very good neighborhood dynamics You're at right. the moment. Oh, that takes so much strength to yep. fight something when everybody else is indoctrinated in something and yeah. you know it's wrong. Yeah. It's, just takes so much strength. I hope one day, like if I could see anything, I really hope by the time I have grandkids that this story is actually in our U.S. history, right? That's I hope so too. Yeah, I knew so. I prior to this, I knew Sojourner Truth's mm-hmm. name. Yep. I could have said uh, 19th century. I'm guessing right around the time of the Civil War, yep. and I knew the title "Ain't I a Woman?" Right. But I had never been asked to read it. I had never learned. I mean, if I maybe learned about Sojourner Truth, it was probably a tiny little paragraph in one of those little blue highlighted sections off in the margins of a history book, right? I remember that. That was the same thing in my history books. And then I took it upon myself, but I luckily come from a family of civil rights activists. So I knew a lot of these things beforehand, but I still remember when I took the time to actually really learn the truth behind Sojourner Truth, um, behind Rosa Parks, behind all of these amazing amazing women you know Mm -hmm. and I was like holy cow why is this not like front and center in our history books because you have to right it is fascinating and so important and you have to either be lucky enough to be born into a family right to teach you or you have to be somehow awake enough to go search it out yourself which is hard especially as a teenager I mean when you should be learning these things you should be 13 14 15 16 years old right really honestly and that's I mean who wants to go against the grain when you're a teenager Mm -hmm. or to just have the wherewithal to know to look how do you even know Know I'm sure there's Right. There's, I'm sure, a ton of things that I'm ignorant of even right now. Oh my gosh, yeah. That I will discover in the next few years and I'll think, how in the world did I never know that? Mm-hmm. And these are things we really should not just leave to chance for people to discover on their own. No. Like you said, this yep. needs to be front and center, not off in the margins. Nope. In history books so that every single American knows her name, knows what she right. did, knows what she went through, right? We should know as yeah. much about her as we know about, like, it It ugh, drives me crazy. It, like, burns to my core that we, I know more about Robert E. Lee yeah. than ugh. I do about Sojourner Truth. You know right. what I mean? In context of the civil rights movement and right. the civil war times, you know what I right. mean? Like, right. but that's what I was taught. I was taught all about how, what an incredible general he was and all of his strategies. He freaking lost. Yeah. (laughs) That should have been a disqualifier right there. Or he should be in the margins, right? You just swap them. It's fine. Blue margins. Like he really should be in the blue margins. But we have chapters dedicated to him. You know? So absolutely (laughs) well thank goodness i guess better late than never and here we are and that's that's the thrust of this project in the first place i guess is better late than never here we go and we're going to bring as many people with us as we can with them out of the blue margins that's what we're going to do exactly (laughs) exactly so let's see we'll get back into sojourner true's story and her path let's see so she yes after she rescued her son Mm -hmm. um won the court case and rescued her son she was staying with the Van Wagonens, and she had a, re- a life-changing religious experience and became a devout Christian. Yep. So in 1829, she moved with her son Peter to New York City, where she worked as a housekeeper for a Christian evangelist. And she became really involved in religious life and participated in lots of different congregations. And she gained a reputation of being a great preacher and a singer. So the next year, 1843, was a turning point for Isabella. She became a Methodist. Um, so I guess that would mean that she committed to a particular I denomination of mm-hmm. Christianity. Yeah. 
Um, and then, so on June 1st, which was Pentecost Sunday, mm-hmm. they, she changed her name, which I just love the power of renaming yourself, yeah. right? Huh? And she named herself Sojourner Truth. She chose the name because she heard the spirit of God calling on her to preach the truth. And Sojourner, of course, is someone who is like a wanderer or an adventurer, someone who goes on a quest or a journey, right? Mm -hmm. So she told her friends, uh, quote, the spirit calls me and I must go, quote, and, and left to make her way traveling and preaching about the abolition of slavery taking only a few possessions in a pillowcase. She traveled North working her way up through the Connecticut river Valley towards Massachusetts. And then in 1844, another kind of pivotal moment in her life was that she made it to Florence, Massachusetts, and she worked in a community overseeing the laundry, supervising both men and women, which I think was very rare at the time in in any workplace. Um, And while there, she met famous activists. So up in Massachusetts, we have at this time, um, William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass, the two luminaries and the two, probably the biggest names in the abolitionist movement. And this uh, community encouraged her. They saw, I think, her potential as a speaker, and she delivered her first anti-slavery speech that year in Massachusetts. And this is also a powerful moment. She started dictating her memoirs, so telling her story. Of course, she she was not literate. Um, she wouldn't have been taught to read as a child. And so she dictated her memoirs to her friend, Olive Gilbert. And in 1850, William Lloyd Garrison privately published her book, The Narrative of Sojourner Truth, A Northern Slave. That same year, she purchased a home in Florence for $300. And she spoke at the first National Women's Rights Convention in Worcester, Massachusetts. And in 1854... She used the proceeds from the sales of her narrative and paid off the mortgage on her home and owned it outright. I am so jealous. <laughs> that's true. I love it. That's funny. Yeah, that's an accomplishment at any time, isn't no it? No kidding, huh? But for a single Black woman and a freed slave at that time, I just... Incredible. Like incredible. I said, she needs to be out of the blue margin. She really does. Yeah, what a woman. Mm-hmm. So, th- so coming, this is where we're approaching the moment that she delivered this, fa- this famous speech that we're going to talk about today. So in 1851, Truth joined a lecture tour through New York State. In May, she attended the Ohio Women's Rights Convention in Akron, Ohio, and that is where she delivered her famous speech on women's rights, later known as Ain't I a Woman? So this was a... Um, an, a spontaneous speech at the convention. She right. hadn't planned it. And of course she wouldn't have written any notes out, um, but she stood up and delivered this at the moment. Yep. So um, as I was preparing for this episode, I remembered as I thought about Ain't I a Woman before I actually listened to it, I thought, I think I remember reading someone, a historian who had pointed out, wait a second, she was from New York. Exactly. She would not have used the word Never ain't. Said it. Never. Right? Yeah. So at all. Right. So we, so Raina, why don't you take it away? Because we, um, I looked at this and I'm sure you knew this prior to this, but it took this project for me to learn more about this. But if you can tell us more about the, the versions of the speech and kind of how that evolved. Sure, absolutely. So I think most people are familiar, most familiar with the popular version that's from 1863. 
okay. of um, her famous Ain't I a Woman speech, but they have no idea that this popular version, while it is based off of her original 1851 speech, is not exact, is not her speech, and is vastly mm-hmm. different from the original one. Um, Nell Irvin Painter, a professor at Princeton University who specializes in American history and is notable for her works on Southern history of the 19th century, um, she was the scholar who first rang the bell on this historical mistake. So Mm -hmm. the popular but inaccurate version was written and published in 1863, so 12 years after she gave her original speech, by a white abolitionist named Frances Dana Barker Gage. Curiously, she not only changed all of Sojourner's words, but embellished facts about her life. So she represented um, Sojourner Truth as having 13 children instead of five, and chose to represent Sojourner um, speaking in a stereotypical, quote, Southern Black slave accent, unquote, rather than in her distinct upper New York State low Dutch accent, which is Mm -hmm. very, if you've heard that accent, it's Mm -hmm. very crisp and very proper. So mm-hmm. I find it very interesting that she was almost demoted in a way to yeah. a, um, even though she was illiterate, she did she wouldn't have sounded that way. Right, Does that make right. Sense? Yeah. So she English- was demoted in a way to that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And I was just going to say too, that English was her second language. So right. she would have had a Dutch accent of yeah. some sort, right? Been like it so cool to hear, huh? Yeah, exactly. I don't <laughs> yeah. even know how to imagine it. I know, I can't either. Um, uh, so Gage's actions were well-intended, and they served the suffrage and women's rights movement at the time, but by today's standards of ethical journalism, her actions were, as we can know, a gross misrepresentation of truth's words and identity. Um, by changing her words and her dialect to that of a stereotypical Southern slave, Frances Gage effectively erased her Dutch heritage and her authentic voice, as well as unintentionally adding to the oversimplification of the American slave culture and furthering the eradication of our nation's northern slave history, like we talked about earlier. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. Frances Gage admitted that her amended version had given but a faint sketch of Sojourner's original speech, but she felt justified and believed her version was stronger and more palatable. Interesting. Even mm-hmm. back then, we had to be palatable to the American public, right? Yeah. Then Sojourner's original version. The most authentic version of Sojourner's Truth, Ain't I a Woman Speech, was first published in 1851 by her good friend, the Reverend Marius Robinson, in the Anti-Slavery Bugle, and was titled, quote, On Women's Rights, which I find very interesting. Um, Completely Mm -hmm. different connotation, if you think about the title, right? Absolutely. Um, Robinson had been in attendance for true speech, and he wrote his recollection of her words immediately afterwards. Wow. So yeah, that would have been, I I mean, as a historian, right, which document do you trust more? One that was written immediately after the event or one that was written, how long? Yes, 12 12 years years later, later, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. if you think of anything that you try to remember, well, I mean, that would be like you and I trying, well, I guess that's not true. I was going to say remembering a conversation we had at your wedding reception. It was a a memorable moment, certainly. Right. You can't remember word for word what I, someone I said. I remember seeing you. I yeah, do not yeah. remember anything that was said. Like I don't legit, either. right? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's just not historically viable material, right? right? If you're writing right. it that that No, it is afterwards. not at all. Your no. our memory is um, you know, we could go on and on about memory, but memory is not reliable. No, not a, no, it's not. No. It's not. No. So even to have anybody writing it 
um, by their hand, it's going to be slightly skewed by the the biases and the Absolutely. impressions and the mental state at the time and the the context of the person writing it down. Mm-hmm. But the closer you are, obviously, to the event, the the more likely you are to get at the at accuracy, right? Yes. So I have to um, mention something I forgot to mention, Reina, is that our source for this is called the Sojourner Truth Project. And that's oh, yeah. an online source that we found. It's fantastic, actually. Yeah, it's, it's really great. Fantastic. Yep. I, I spent so hours going through it. And I had I had known about it and I'd probably clicked on it once or twice for other things. You know what I mean? Just okay. whatever it may be. But I uh-huh. spent hours last week just reading. My husband was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's really so, thorough. And, and it has like many different, it's really worth, well, I don't know if you listen, listened or watched um, a lot of the different videos, but they have several different women mm-hmm. um, reading her original speech and trying to replicate what that low Dutch accent, the Northern accent, but with the Dutch influence would have sounded like. And it's so interesting to compare them and the different inflections in the voice to try to get um, an imagining of what she might have sounded like. Right. So right now in the, the program, because the speech is so short, actually, we're going to play um, one speech and then the other speech. Um, so you can hear her actual, what, what we believe is closest to her actual words in her actual accent. And then we'll hear the, what we think of now, what historians believe is an inaccurate rendering, rendering mm-hmm. of truth speech. Um, but the one that is much, much more famous and actually carries the title, Ain't I a Woman, right? right. So we'll listen to both speeches. May I say a few words? I want to say a few words about this matter. I am a woman's right. I have as much muscle as any man and I can do as much work as any man. I have plowed and reaped and husked and chopped and mowed. And can any man do better than that? I have heard much about the sexes being equal. I can carry as much as any man and I can eat as much too, if I can get it. I am as strong as any man that is today. As for intellect, all I can say is if a woman have a pint and a man a quart, why can't she have her little pint full? You need not be afraid to give us our right for fear we will take too much, for we can't take much more than our pint will hold. The poor men seem to be all in confusion, and they don't know what to do. Why, children, if you have woman's rights, give it to her, and you will feel better. You have your own rights, and there will be so much trouble. I can't read, but I can hear. And I have heard the Bible and learned that Eve caused man to sin. But if woman upset the world, to give her a chance to set it right side up again. The lady has spoken about Jesus, how he never spurned woman from him, and she was right. When Lazarus died, Mary and Martha came to him with faith and love and besought him to raise their brother. And Jesus wept 
and Lazarus came forth. And how came Jesus into the world? Through God who created him and woman who bore him. Men, where is your part? But women are coming up. Blessed be God and a few of the men are coming up with him. But men is in a tight place. The poor slave is on him. The women are coming on him. And he is surely between a hawk and a buzzard. Wow. So that was, again, um, the version of Sojourner Truth's speech that was written down by her friend, Reverend Marius Robinson, who was there at the event, heard her speak, and wrote down his best recollection of what she had said right after the event, and then published it in the Anti-Slavery Bugle, and the title was On Woman's Rights. Um, the next version of the speech we're going to hear is the version that Francis Gage wrote down 12 years after the event. And it should be noted, it's really worth looking online to see um, the transcription because Gage again, not only takes liberties with the content of what Truth um, had spoken and wouldn't have known, actually, wouldn't have been able to remember what she said, but also really writes out um, a very stylized representation of what the Southern um, enslaved people's dialect sounded like to Gage. Um, and it's kind of stunning to see like the well chillin war dars so much racket dar must be something. Um, it's um, very, very stylized. Carrie Washington, the American actress, Carrie Washington is going to, uh, perform this more well-known speech. This is the one everybody knows and reads, and this was titled Ain't I a Woman? I should note also, I'm sorry I didn't say, the previous actress who performed um, the original speech uh, is a, a Dutch actress of color who whose name is S.T. So that was the one we just heard. And now we're going to hear Carrie Washington performing Francis Gage's version of the speech, Ain't I a Woman? Well, children, where there is so much racket, there must be something at a kilter. I think that twixt the Negroes of the South and the women at the North all talking about rights, the white man gonna be in a fix pretty soon. <laughs> but what's all this here talking about? That man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere. <laughs> Nobody ever helps me into carriages <laughs> or over mud puddles or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at my arm. I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns and no man could head me. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as any man when I could get it. And I could bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have born 13 children, seen most sold off into slavery. And when I cried out with a mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? And they talk about this thing in the head. What is it they call it? Oh, that's, that's right, yeah, intellect. 
<laughs> That's it, honey. Well, what's that got to do with women's rights and Negroes' rights? If my cup won't hold but a pint and your holds a quart, wouldn't you be mean not to let me have my little half measure full? That, that, that man in the back there, he says, women can't have as much rights as men because Christ wasn't a woman. Well, where did your Christ come from? Where did your Christ come from? He came from God and a woman. Man didn't have nothing to do with it. woman God ever made was strong enough to turn the world upside down all alone, well, these women here together ought to be able to turn it back and get it right side up again. And they ask him to do it. The men better let them. So, Raina, what are some things that strike you as we think about these issues and, and as we just listen to these uh, two different versions of the speech? Well, what I find is that the original speech is um, like a, oh my gosh, to me, it's almost like a siren call, you know, to mm. um, these are the words that I think we feel in 2020 as powerfully almost as we felt, as she felt them in 1850. Does that mm. make sense? Like mm-hmm. um, so much has changed, but so little has changed. So that is just uh, something that we can discuss later. I, though, I think it is amazing regardless of the, I should say, I think the message is amazing regardless of which version of the speech we're talking about. Yeah. Okay. But uh, I have a automatic bristling at Mm. the changes that Gage made to her speech Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. um, as I said before, it takes somebody who had powerful words that were beautifully spoken and mm-hmm. reduces her down to sounding like an illiterate backwoods child. Mm-hmm. And I understand um, the reasons why Gage did it, because she mm-hmm. needed to have a caricature of mm-hmm. somebody in order to get her point across. And during that time, that seems to have been more palatable to the American mm-hmm. public, to the suffrage unit, blah, blah, blah. I can understand why white women were, um, while they were struggling to gain equality, they needed to make somebody else sound less than them mm-hmm. in order to boost themselves up to mm-hmm. say, look, we deserve equality, but it's okay. There's still other people who are, you know, not as educated as we are and not as smart and not as whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there is a tactic behind that too. I wish I had studied um, political science, you know, mm-hmm. because I think that that is, um, there's a lot of political tactics in things that mm-hmm. we don't realize. We just take as fact and as history, mm-hmm. right? And it really isn't. So yeah. I think that's kind of my um, take on the different versions of the speeches. Yeah. It's so patronizing, right? For yes. her to think that she has the right to yes. to change someone else's, yeah. um, to change them in any way at all right. to her own yep. use. And, and I guess she thought, I mean, she must have thought, because Frances Gage was an abolitionist and yep. she was trying to help. Right. Um, but it, it reminds me of kind of the white savior complex oh, that, 100%. that is- Right. That she thinks like, oh, I'll help you. Right. But let me fix this first. The, yes. the way you spoke doesn't sound right. Mm-hmm. And whatever the motivations are, yep. 
to say like, this is going to be, who is Francis Gage to decide what Sojourner Truth sounded like? Plus she was alive at the time. Sojourner Truth was alive at the Mm -hmm. time. And we read, didn't we read somewhere too, that she was frustrated whenever people would kind of quote her and they would say, whoa, I didn't think you sounded like that. And she'd she'd say, what did you think I sounded like? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just, I would be so frustrated and insulted. Well, I mean, I think think it goes to what society has impressed upon us and Mm -hmm. made us think that we should think about other groups of people. I can't Mm -hmm. tell you how many times it's gotten much better now that I have a quote unquote MD behind my name, because, Mm -hmm. you know, as Dr. Clay, Dr. Clay McKay, people expect me to sound something a certain way. Let's put it that Uh way. But um, throughout my life, if they heard me first on the phone and then met me, I was invariably um, met with, Oh, I didn't Mm -hmm. expect that. And then if people saw Mm -hmm. me first and then heard me, um, I heard so often, wow, you are so well-spoken. Is that true? Oh, Raina. And you just go, what what did you expect? And I would joke. I would be like, well, I guess that's California for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you knew what they were saying. I absolutely knew what they were saying. I mean, how do you metabolize that? How did you not? How did you well, end it on the day, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, some of the time I just let it go. Some of the time I addressed it, probably not in um, as kind of a manner as I could have. Um, mm. But some days I just really didn't feel like being kind to somebody who was being so blatantly racist. And mm. um, I think what is very hard a lot of those times is if you call it out, people um, tend to internalize that and think mm. that they are a quote, bad person because of what they've done and then it automatically becomes a matter of being defensive and then we don't move in the conversation so um i've gotten older and i've Mm -hmm. learned more how to um approach those situations in just a way to hopefully have a good dialogue rather than people getting offended and defensive even though i mean i should honestly be the one who's offended right which i am but you know. And that's the, the unfair burden placed upon the person who's oh, being mistreated is to say, like, you have to be so carefully watch yep. your tone when you're the one yep. who's being mistreated. My, just in the, the previous episode um, that we did on the Seneca Falls Convention, we talked about, so this is basically white feminism, right? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have the intersection of race right. and, well, and sex at that juncture in, in our conversation. But we were talking about um, whether whether people who do have legitimate grievances and have been oppressed in society, whether they do have a responsibility to soften their tone. And, and we were kind of trying to figure out maybe the difference between a responsibility rather th- or as opposed to using it tactically and strategically, where... Mm my reading partner, Courtney, was saying like, that's tone policing to tell women that they have to talk in a certain way or they won't be heard by men. And I said, yeah, I agree with that, that we shouldn't be policing it. And just, I'm just, I just learned a lot from what you just said is, is I guess what I'm trying to say that there were certain days that you just had had it is what I heard from you. Just Mm -hmm. like, you know what? I am so sick of of being treated this way. (laughs) And I would hope that whoever heard you 
say whatever you said in whatever tone you said it would be able to look past maybe your frustration and and then do some introspection and think, whoa, I bet I would be really frustrated too if if I were, you know what I mean? And that the burden should be on that person to do the work of maybe decoding and thinking like, I'm going to look past the frustration and see the message that she's trying to tell me, which is, this is not easy for her and she lives in the system and am I perpetuating the system and not put that work back on you. But then you're telling me also that you have been maybe strategic because you don't want to off, but you tell me what you, what do you think? I have, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I, most of the time when I was so frustrated and I was like, Mm -hmm. I am just done. I am done of this. I am done, done, done. It was built from, um, you know, there's a totally, uh, I should say popular or like woke term right now of microaggression, right? right but I yep. think it hits the nail on the head. There mm-hmm. are constant microaggressions that I deal with being a black female in society that other people just don't have to deal with. And mm-hmm. there are, I'm sure, constant microaggressions that let's say an Asian trans male has to deal with that I do not have that experience with. So I... Mm-hmm. Um, So I recognize that, but I think what happens is sometimes those microaggressions build up and then one more microaggression is what makes you spill over. Right. And in those cases, I have to either just let it go because we're human. Right. And sometimes you just have to like explode even so that you don't implode. Um, But I also usually would have to step back and recognize that it was because of those constant microaggressions I had a pot that was almost boiling over and whoever just happened to walk across my path and say that does not know that I had that pot mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah and absolutely. so in that way even though I 100% agree that there is an element of tone policing and it's self-tone policing I mm-hmm. also have to recognize that most people walking past me in whatever point of my life it is where we intersect don't get or know like we do with anybody what is in my past right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. should they be met with such an explosive response maybe some of the time but most of the time if I give them grace um then you can usually come to a place of recognition now Mm -hmm. there are just some people that (laughs) it doesn't matter yeah absolutely you know i'm never gonna get it right and that's just that's 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 neither here nor there you know that's for another day but well it's true though right i mean and we actually did talk about this just on the last episode and i think it it does apply to lots of different situations but yeah thank you for for sharing that Raina. that's helpful um okay let's see other thoughts from the speeches so we oh yes so yeah thank you for talking about Gage and yep. the patronizing way that she, <laughs> ay, ay, ay. and then yeah. yeah, not just patronizing to change it to any accent, but to just it's it was such a stereotype and such a trope, right? Absolutely. Um, let's see. But if we see that, I mean, I gave them my example, but you see it day in and day out. We expect our black athletes to act a certain way and speak a certain way, and when you get intelligent conversations and thoughtful peaceful protests like Kaepernick or something like that such a visceral reaction of the majority which honestly they aren't 
honestly. Yeah. White male are not the majority, but we consider them that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's such a visceral reaction to it because it does not fit into the stereotypical trope that they expect right. somebody to right. be in. So it, 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 is, it just permeates society. We all yeah. live in it. Like we were saying earlier, we swim in this murky waters mm-hmm. you know we swim in these murky waters all the time so yeah I'm yeah. not I'm not surprised that she did it I want to give her that grace even though it is truly blatantly patronizing racist yeah. etc yeah. the way it was but she was trying and you know you've got to give her some grace in that way I do think though that um she was trying as a means to whatever her end was yeah you know yeah that's right yep. she was doing the best she knew sure. at the time uh-huh. I, I suppose yep. which is an, an explanation even if it's not really an excuse I guess but it Absolutely. is an explanation of where she was in her head uh-huh. at the time right yeah. okay so one point that you had made when we were talking about this um earlier was that man is in a tight place and yeah. women are coming up on him and so tell me tell me what you were thinking of at when when we heard that I thought doesn't that just sum it all up like I think all of patriarchy misogyny racism classism whatever it may be is born Mm -hmm. out of fear Mm -hmm. um fear of being less than Mm. and I think some people feel like if others quote unquote, mm-hmm. are equal to them, it makes mm-hmm. them less than. Mm-hmm. Because and, they're used to being superior, so right. it feels like a demotion to Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Right? And what does it say um, when you are used to privilege? Isn't that, what is that thing that's going yeah. around on Insta right now? It's like yes. something like when you are so used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. There we go. Exactly. That's what it is. Yeah. That's exactly, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And yep. I think that bears though to human nature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is not a good part of our human nature, but we classify each other. You can look at any system, look at the, um, look at India and its caste system, look mm-hmm. at um, New England, Boston. Oh, holy cow. The, I never realized how um, liberal and how segregated a place could be as when living in Boston. Time. You know yeah. what I mean? You classify people. You're the Italian Americans, you're the Irish Americans, you're the mafia, you're the families that you're the wasps with the families that came over on the pilgrims, you're the Mm -hmm. students, you're the, you know, you're the doctors, you're the, you're the Jamaican immigrants, whatever it may be, right? And Mm -hmm. you try to make somebody less than in order to feel important. And that just goes to the basis of our human nature that is a desire to be powerful, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. you, I mean, you even said, weren't you at Disney yes. last weekend and you saw, yeah. what was the quote on that guy's t-shirt? So that quote, let me see. I remember I wrote it down. Oh, it said, yeah. so we were walking by just normal, mm-hmm. nice middle-class look like dad, right? Just uh-huh. classic typical dad in his probably his late forties. I would say not okay. 50 yet, but late forties, Caucasian. Mm-hmm. I should point mm-hmm. that out too. And it said, mm-hmm. he I walked by with a shirt on and I find it funny. I love, so part of my favorite thing about going to Disney is people wear a lot of graphic shirts, right? With okay. phrases and funny things on them. And it's like, like kind of a fun part of people watching for me to see like what they choose to put on their shirt to walk through Disney. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so um, he walked by and his shirt said, quote, in order to conquer, you must trample the other man, unquote. Yuck. And I was like, holy cow dude you're in the yeah. most magical place on earth <laughs> with your you that? Yeah. <laughs> and you choose to wear that 
today of all yeah. like you're walking by Cinderella's castle and we can talk <laughs> all about the princess narrative and all the things that are wrong with Disney on another podcast you know right, what right, I mean? right. yes <laughs> but come so, on you are there with your kids you're supposed to be believing in magic for a day yeah it's so blatant and you almost wonder if it's a joke but it's like too sincere to be a joke no 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 because there's some that are jokes you know what I mean this was no this was a pure like um and I don't want to I don't want to disparage the south but this was a pure southern pride sort of t-shirt like there was the American Eagle that was like behind the, you know no, what I mean? Really? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> this was pure Southern pride. Well, that is crazy because it is, it's just so blatant. So, our very first um, episode is on Neolithic humans yeah. and um, the archaeological evidence that there was for more egalitarianism yep. early, mm-hmm. early, early, early. And um, this, this archaeologist and anthropologist, Rianne Eisler, talks about how those egalitarian societies were conquered eventually and she by aggressive warring cultures yep. and she calls the egalitarians the partnership cultures and then all over the world at different times you have these aggressive conquerors and she calls them the dominator cultures yep. and i think just to your point is what reminded yep. me is your point that you're just saying like it's human nature it's yep. the dark side of all of us of of humans that want to be on a totem pole that feel this scarcity right of of like if I don't there's not enough for everybody Mm -hmm. and so I have to push down the person below me and that just that t-shirt just really struck me in order to conquer you have to trample the other man it's like oh yeah that's dominator culture and we and we still are feeling it that's still what that the hard thing is that's part of our human nature but does our culture help us to um, subdue that in ourselves and to train ourselves to be better and more um, kind and more egalitarian? Or does our culture kind of feed that fire and blow on that flame of like, yeah, get the other guy. And I mean, as we've all discovered in the last four years with our president. That's what I was about ready to say. I, and I, I don't think you can be naive being black in America. Let me just put it that way. But at points during um, the Obama years, Mm -hmm. I believed we were turning a corner. Mm. Even though in the back of my mind, I kept on saying, be prepared for Mm. um, my family terms it. And once again, you know, no, this is coming from a black family, but we Mm -hmm. were saying, be prepared for the white lash that's going to happen instead of the backlash. We knew it was going to happen. We knew it was going Mm -hmm. to happen. I didn't think in 2020 or 2019 or 2018 that we would get as truly ugly as we have. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I, I didn't think, even though I know people believe this, obviously they're manifesting it loud and clear right now, including the most powerful um, man in our country, our president. Mm -hmm. Um, it was not popular to do it. Like mm-hmm. you were, you were societal, you were really shamed by society if you right. didn't um, at least put on the face of being respectable and of being yep. polite and of yep. um, appreciating differences, right? Yeah. And absolutely. now it has just opened the floodgates of yeah. ugliness and of the basest cores of our humanity. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I My kids and I keep talking about how it's like Voldemort pressing on the dark mark and summoning all of the Death Eaters oh, yeah. from everywhere, right? Oh, like you yeah. thought they were gone and then suddenly, oh, no, they weren't gone. They were just in hiding. And now all you need is a leader right. to just fan the flames of everybody's worst parts of human nature. And here they come crawling out of the woodwork and feeling empowered to say, all of the things that, like you said, they felt like they couldn't say right. because it was frowned upon. And now they can because the leader's there going, oh, no, no. Yeah, totally this fun. is the side we're going to encourage. Is, it. Yeah, this is what we're doing. I remember yeah. the, um, so I was on call the night of the election. Mm. And so I just happened to be up to watch at 3 a.m. in the morning when Trump, um, when uh, Clinton's um, um, exceeded, at, well, not what's the word? We need to come back to it. Conceded. Thank you. Conceded. Conceded. And then Trump, um, you know, became the next president of the United States. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just remember feeling just despondent. Um, Not surprised, though, because I had known for a while, just listening to people, you become an observer. And if you listen, you can hear the tenor of the country. And uh, and I knew he was going to win. I just knew it just the way he he is uh, he is a lot of things but I will give him that he is um master media manipulator and mm-hmm. he did a great job of making people who felt like they hadn't been seen for the past 8 years feel like they were being seen and that right. they could act out and mm-hmm. once again when you play to the base of the baseness of humanity um your uh it's is it your id or your ego my gosh i'm going back to um the id your id says i want to come out and i want to manifest myself right Right. so the next morning because i was on call at the hospital so i was overnight call so there was a dunkin donuts and remember this is in massachusetts i was in massachusetts Mm -hmm. at the time i wasn't even in the quote-unquote south right right right. um there was a dunkin donuts that is in was in between my hospital and my home right and so i stopped because i was like i'll admit it i was totally depressed so i was yeah. buying a glazed donut yeah. <laughs> at just in the morning just yeah. to make myself feel better right because this is not good what just happened yeah. last night right oh um so um, anyway, so I pull into the parking lot and I drive a, I drive a German car. We'll just say mm-hmm. that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I pull in and I'm waiting to merge into the, uh, into the section. Right. And a young okay. man walks out, um, probably in his late twenties, early thirties. He looked like he was either a painter or an electrician. He had his tool belt. He had all of those sorts of things. He was white. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. he walks past my car with his coffee and his bag of whatever had in it. Right. And he looked at me and he stopped. And I remember thinking, this is not going to be good, right? Um, He backed up and then he stood in front of my car. He banged my hood and he did the Heil Hitler sign. And he said, Heil Trump three times and banged my car each time and walked away. And I went, welcome to America under Trump. Oh my god! A day before. A day he before, he would have never done do it. Raina, I am a so sorry. I'm speechless. This is what happens, you yeah. know? You know what? And th- we'll talk about this later, too, I guess. But I, <laughs> we'll talk about intersectionality yeah. later in the in the podcast yeah. series yeah. where 
in the 20th century, people start to be, I think, more aware of different identities. Yep. But I'm just sitting here listening to you and um, thinking of my own journey as a woman not realizing, and we talked about this yes. a little bit over text, that when we were friends as freshmen in college, I think I did see us both just as girls, just yep. both as women. Yep. And it's been a learning process for me um, to realize that even though we're both women and we experience difficulty and oppression on that plane together, that I've never had that experience in my life because when somebody looks at me, they they assume different things. Yeah. Than when they look at you and you were just sitting in your car and he could look at you and that you would have that, those life experiences that I will never have. It's really, um, it's been humbling to me to learn this kind of at a late stage in my life and realize that those, uh, that we weren't having the same experience and that when we were friends freshman year, that I wasn't more aware and sensitive to you and the experiences that you were having and I just, I wish I could hug you and apologize that I, I wasn't aware. Hug, but honey, there's nothing to apologize about. We just talked, what did we say? 20 minutes ago, we said, what teenager, one, mm-hmm. has the resources, both, you know, mental, academic, whatever, to mm-hmm. search out of themselves, right? Mm-hmm. It's And also, what teenager wants to understand outside of themselves as a teenager your whole goal is to assimilate right Mm. that's that's human nature once again we're talking Mm. about human nature that is basic Mm. human development we want to assimilate we want to be part of a group we want to find out where we are in a group so to look out and see that is almost not part of your id right Mm. it's much Mm. more of an ego thing and i have come as in my oh no i forgot i was about ready to say it but no remember we're 39 (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> we are not in our forties. Not, not yet. Not in nope. our forties. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Maybe someday. Oh dear. Oh, um, like you said, every day I learn things and mm-hmm. I experience things that I had no idea were existing outside of my sphere. Right because mm-hmm. I had my specific sphere. I am very grateful that right now, and I don't want to use the word popular to in any manner, way, shape, or form demean the movement we have right now, but I am mm-hmm. very grateful right now that my life experience is being recognized, right? Yeah. It means a lot. It means a lot, right? It's beautiful. Yeah, and, but it was always just my life experience, right? Now, that was harassment. That was blatant harassment. And I was on the phone with my husband and that man is so lucky that my Mm -hmm. Scottish husband, because he, he says Americans are weak. And he's like, well, you can settle so many things in the back alley of a bar with a punch. Because the things yeah. he was screaming at that man, because he was on yeah. my speaker in my phone, right? Oh, like he oh is gosh. so lucky that my husband wasn't in that car. But you know, what's mm-hmm. interesting, and we'll have to have a whole nother discussion about this with another podcast in another time is 
the difference in the way I am treated when I call it white adjacent because my husband is white. He's European. That man would have never dared to do that with a white man sitting in the car. Right. But he had a black female sitting alone in a car. Right. right? Yeah. So I find it now when I can step out of these moments and, and thankfully a lot of times I've almost developed a mechanism where it kind of time slows down so that Mm -hmm. I don't react as much as I used to, right? Mm -hmm. I can just go, all right, I'm safe. I'm in my Mm -hmm. car. Like, Mm -hmm. he cannot, unless he pulled out a weapon, which I didn't Mm -hmm. expect him to have. I mean, he had his tool belt on. He was on his way to work. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I am Mm -hmm. not going to be hurt by this. Yes, it hurts. It's still to this day kind of, I bristle, you know, remembering that because it was just like, whoa, the audacity of somebody to think that they could do that, you know? Mm -hmm. But it also just makes me go, look um when people go well we are so good america is great make america great again i'm like "Mm, mm, mm, mm." yeah (laughs) yeah when was it great for whom for whom whom? well anything else what any um thoughts or takeaways or a summary to to wrap up reina um i think that like we had said earlier, she needs to come from the blue margins and be mm-hmm. front and center in history, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. with where we are in our current state of affairs and with trying to break that glass ceiling for women. I think that this is probably one of the best rallying calls, most concise rallying calls I've heard. We are just mm-hmm. as capable. We are just as an intellectual and mm-hmm. we are bring a different set of values to the table than men do Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that can be um that can be a bonus that can be a benefit Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. I love how she acknowledges that men might feel vulnerable right now and that was back Mm -hmm. in 1850 and Mm -hmm. I think the same Mm -hmm. thing stands true 170 years later did I do my math right yes (laughs) (laughs) right Mm -hmm. that men are feeling very vulnerable right now Right. Mm-hmm. It's, and yeah. I think that there is something to be said from her approach to how yeah. she gave this speech. Right. Let's take Gage's interpretation of it out of it. Her original mm-hmm. speech, as much as we know that it's original, mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. is she read her audience well. And I mm-hmm. think that there's a lot to be um, said for that. I think that's yeah. what promotes discourse and dialogue. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Um, yeah, such a great example in that way. Mm-hmm. And I love, you know, I thought, um, as you mentioned, the her talking about men feeling vulnerable and in a confusion, I thought about at the and in the same speech that she talks about how she has um, done farm work and that she can lift as much as men and that she eats as much as a man. And she's like, put carbs you know, in front of me and I'll do it too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. But I love that that's, that really, I think both are true. Cause as you just said, women, quote unquote women, right? Like in general, bring a, can bring a certain set of traits mm-hmm. and that's true. And at the same time, she's really, calling into question those really rigid gender roles that say men are a certain way, right? Because she's calling, not calling out, but she's acknowledging men's vulnerability, which is not a typical male trait. And she's highlighting her own physical strength and her robustness. I think she was like six feet tall. From what I understand, she was quite an imposing woman. I think that's the word for it is a description for her. Yeah. Yeah. And she had to do, I mean, she could, she was saying like, I'm as strong as a man is, 
Um, and, and yet I'm a woman too. She just has so much, um, I think she's bringing so many things that people thought of as conflicting and not able to coexist into the same very short speech, um, which is pretty revolutionary for the time and even still relevant today. So that was maybe, I guess that would be my big takeaway if you said what, what was a takeaway from today and especially in context of last um, the, the previous episode, episode with Seneca Falls. I can't wait to hear that. <laughs> yeah. It, well, it was such a great text that again, I had never even read. I'd never, I knew what it was and I had never actually read it until this project, but we were at Seneca Falls, which was right before this speech. It was, there were hints of what was going to go awry yes. within the suffrage movement where yes. white women would, would split off when it, I guess, like I alluded to before, they didn't have a concept of when they said women, what they meant was white women. Oh, yeah. And Absolutely. and then for some people, um, when they said black people or African-Americans, what they meant was African-American men. Yeah. And yep. and the ones that always got left behind were the African-American women. And so for her to stand up in that audience and kind of say to the men, mm-hmm. guess what? Like, I'm African-American too. And to the, and I am a woman too. Acknowledge my existence. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so powerful. Mm -hmm. Can I end with a quote too, Raina? There's, um, this isn't from the speech, obviously, because we Uh just listened to the speech, but I just wanted to read this quote. It says, there's a great stir about colored men getting their rights, but not a word about the colored women. And if colored men get their rights and not colored women theirs, you see the colored men will be masters over the women and it will be just as bad as it was before. I really, truly think that this quote is the whole crux of the matter. We've allowed society to develop into a system where we just have haves and have nots. And Mm -hmm. whether it be in terms of rights, access, treatment, gender, sexuality, any of those things, we have found a way to make sure that there is always a portion of society that is othered, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you don't have somebody who's oppressed, then an oppressor does not exist. Going Mm -hmm. all the way back to our Mm -hmm. id once again, Mm -hmm. right? The feeling Mm -hmm. of the need to be better than. And Mm -hmm. so... um, I think it's 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 scary in a way, but at least if we acknowledge it, we yeah. can dismantle it. Because yes, that's right. As yeah. it is, I mean, just look. I stopped watching the news um, months ago, and then mm-hmm. I turned it back on for the conventions and those sorts of things mm-hmm. because I was like, I want to be part of what's happening right now. But then mm-hmm. I had to turn it back off again because mm-hmm. right now we are dysfunctional. And it's because we have a group of oppressed that are saying enough is enough. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. So. And no, I, I love, I love that Raina saying how you pointed out that if knowing, I guess, knowing and acknowledging that it is part of human nature, yeah. that we can summon the strength to counter that in ourselves right. and bring. That's where our um, ego comes in. Over the yeah, yeah. 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 That's right. <laughs> Now I'm bringing it back to Darwin, what we learned yeah, way yeah. long time ago, right? Really? Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. Yeah. We can we can do it. It's just it's it's work and it is hard. Yeah. 
Yeah, know. and but worth it and essential yeah. if to create the kind of world we all want to live in, Absolutely. right? That's fair for everyone. Well, Raina Clay McKay, <laughs> thank you so much for being here and discussing this text with me. This has just been a joy. It has been delightful. Uh, my absolute pleasure. I can't wait to do it again. Thanks, Raina. Well, next time we will be discussing the philosophical work, The Subjection of Women by English philosopher John Stuart Mill. This is a pretty short book. It's one of my favorites. I've probably read it three times and highlighted like almost every paragraph. I think it's so <laughs> insightful. So um, to listeners, see if you can find a copy and read it. But even if you're not able to read the whole thing, then you can still join in for an enlightening discussion next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. See you next time. Thank you.